Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Joseph Fridman, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Tiago Forte to discuss his latest book, Building a Second Brain. I uh, originally met Tiago years ago through the community fostered by Venkatesh Rao, was the guest for my most recent episode before this of the New Books Network. And I honestly didn't catch on to Tiago's work, though, in any meaningful way till this latest book came out. So I'll quote a little bit from my kind of initial initial review of this, which is that I, and I'm sure many listeners, are as susceptible to any, right, in our little demographic of knowledge workers, to the idea that we can build up just increasing enterprises of the self, more and more self-optimization, more productivity plans, hacks, hustles, and that this can help us get over a lot of the overwhelm that we're feeling, right? There's punitive bureaucracies left and right. There are all these platforms we have to engage with, throwing all this information at us. There's all this knowledge we have to come through, all this noise we have to come through for signal. There's increasing atomization. There's increasing kind of gamification of of putting our ideas out there. And obviously, none of these hacks can get over all of these issues, not in any kind of meaningful material ways, not if we don't collectively come to terms with them. But we still need to find some ways to cope with the fire hose, the river, the storm of noise around us. And I think that's where Tiago uh, comes in with this book. And so th- there, there are a lot of books in the world about ways to make this the world modern world work for us and to find ways to adapt to it. But I found this book in particular to be personal, clear, direct, helpful, actionable. And I wanted to bring some of those ideas to you. And so I am, it's my pleasure to have you. Tiago, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. That's so kind. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit to you about that journey from writing a course and teaching it to this book. And I think this journey is personal at many stages. Can you give us a sense of that? Oh, yeah. It's so personal. Uh, it's so personal. Let's see. Um, I mean, for me, it all started with a, with a health crisis. Uh, it was a kind of mysterious, unexplained uh, pain and tension in my neck and my throat uh, that I started having when I was around 21, 22, um, and just got worse and worse over the weeks and months and eventually years to the point that I kind of had to take control of my own my own healthcare. Uh, went to so many different doctors, took so many different tests and exams, and tried so many different things, but uh, eventually, to, to make a long story short. Uh, it was not like a virus or infection. It was like a functional condition, uh, probably related to stress, related to lack of self-care, related to um, different habits from sleeping to eating to exercising that were just not very good. Um, and I had to sort of, I had to to do a few things to resolve it. You know, I had to to study myself. I had to really, you know, think about things like self-awareness, like my emotions, like my mental health, uh, probably for the first time. (laughs) Um, I also had to study and really master information systems because, you know, chronic healthcare, especially, and especially in the U.S., is so information intensive. I think it's something that you don't encounter until you, until you really have that experience is, you know, you're in this sort of difficult situation with a chronic condition. And that's when they decide to hit you with all these, you know, paperwork and insurance forms and just so many different doctors and specialists telling you so many different things 
which of course none of it is spe- is centralized. None of it. There's no. I mean, to this day, we're barely making progress on a unified electronic, you know, medical record. So you basically are a part-time project manager, just trying to manage all the information related to your condition, uh, which is you know really difficult and required me to gain a lot of fluency. Um, and not just how to use software in general, but how to use it specifically to manage my life, to manage some, you know, this, this very urgent and painful problem I was facing. Uh, and from there, I just slowly expanded, started using it in my college studies, worked well there, started using it in my first job at the Apple store, worked well there, started using it to teach English when I went overseas uh, in the Peace Corps. And then I just kind of expanded more and more from there until finally one day I just realized I needed to start a business. I needed to create a program and eventually write a book um, because I had so much evidence over these years that the simple kind of just very practical approach to managing information that I'd found out of necessity was just so useful to so many people. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the way that you hone in on that framework. And I think this will get pretty meta, right, on some level. The way that you honed in and developed the framework seems to be according to the framework itself. But could you take us through that a little bit and help people understand what things like code and para mean in in your work? Yes. So, you know, my book is filled with a lot of different frameworks. Um, The overarching one, I guess the main one is called code, uh, which stands for the four stages that information moves through. You can think of it almost like like a factory production line from beginning, middle to end. Uh, which is the four letters of code, which is capture, organize, distill, and express. Basically, information gets captured, it comes in, gets organized, some kind of order and structures added to it, gets distilled, gets kind of boiled down to key points, key takeaways, key you know messages, and then it gets expressed. It gets sent back out, gets outputted uh, to produce some kind of result. Um, And there's a bunch of others. I mean, within each of those letters, there are sort of like sub frameworks or sub steps uh, that I've found. I I think that the unifying kind of approach, though, that I've taken is empirical. You know, when you write a when you teach a course or write a book, you always have or you should have uh, a source of authority. Right. Like what is what is the credibility here? What, What is the reason that I should believe what this person is saying? Uh, for you know, people in academia, it might be that they've done a lot of research. Uh, for people in business, they might have started a business on it and made a lot of money. Uh, other people, you know, their their credibility is like conceptual, or it's based on various things. For me, it's really just on the ground, real world experience of my own, and also teaching and coaching people. Productivity coaching is really the the empirical testing ground that all of this comes from. Uh, which is what gives me the confidence that it works. Maybe not every technique works for every person equally, um, but the book, my book is just filled with a collection of maybe a dozen or two uh, of the tools and techniques I found the most broadly useful. Fantastic. And so I'm curious a little bit about your finding resonances or echoes in history as other people tried to distill frameworks for dealing with this sort of thing. Obviously, there's no real comparison to what folks that are looking at screens all day are deluged with now curious a little bit like how far back do you pull 
for inspiration. And in particular, you notice that you're kind of building out this like history, this intellectual history of knowledge management. You're, as you tweeted, these are the types of books I read so that you don't have to. Where are you pulling from? What's helpful when you think about this and are trying to synthesize a set of kind of actionable contemporary strategies? Yeah, I draw from a lot of places. I draw from a lot of places. Definitely history is one of the main ones. Uh, and I think, I mean, that started mostly just because I love history. <laughs> I wasn't because I like strategically chose history, you know, in, in the first place. Uh, I just love history. I've always have uh, war history, you know, Roman history. Uh, I was a, still am a huge fan of James Mishner. Uh, who writes historical fiction, he'll typically go into like a region or country and then tell, you know, the history of that place uh, in the form of a narrative from like ancient times all the way to today. Uh, he's done that with with many countries and regions. Um, and I just have used history, not just when it comes to, you know, knowledge management, but in general to understand the world. I, I really don't see how you can understand the world or much of anything without understanding its past, uh, since everything came from the past. Uh, and so when I started getting into knowledge management, I think I just naturally followed that interest, followed that thread, uh, and just found so many examples. It's, it's really kind of astonishing. We feel like we're, you know, at the end of history, like nothing like this has ever happened before. And in some ways that's true, but in other ways it's happened countless times. Uh, and this is what I found. You know, you go back to uh, the post immediate post-war era. There was an information explosion in the 40s and 50s that uh, really had echoes. Really was very similar to today in many ways. They had their you know media and communications technology of the time that felt as overwhelming as digital technology feels to us today. Uh, go further back, industrial revolution. Go further back, the Enlightenment. Uh, further back, the Renaissance, further back. I mean, you can go, you can find quotes from ancient Greece, from Aristotle, uh, who famously tried to come up with an all-encompassing categorization system. <laughs> uh, so I, I prefer mine, but he, you know, 2000 years ago, he was trying the very same thing. Uh, there's quotes you can find from Aristotle and his contemporaries that, that if you just changed a couple terms would be applicable today. You know, fears about the volume of information, fears about what uh, new kinds of media we're doing to our attention and our character and our, you know, our our integrity. Uh, fears about you know the, the the collapse of society because of the the change of values and the, and the change of um, you know consumption. All these things are just recurring again and again and again. So how that's useful and how I've tried to incorporate it is just to find. The things, the recurring patterns that, that have happened the most, I think are likely to recur again. That's really all I'm doing is finding what has happened before that we can draw from. What, usually there's some sort of like translation or some updating that needs to happen to put it into modern terms. But once you do that, you can unlock solutions that have just been lying around in history forever uh, and not have to invent them from scratch or rediscover them from scratch again. And it... A lot of those, right, are um, at least when I you know, share from the book, right, with folks that are similarly overwhelmed, can't figure out where to start on a project. Some of those, right, are your kind of modern definitions for the different, your, the ontology of knowledge work that you've created and the kind of different rhythms of knowledge work that we're involved in. Some of them, though, are just these kinds of like aphoristic statements that you stand behind about, you know, 
um, how people should relate to information, right? You borrow this, this, this famous phrase from getting things done. Your mind is for having ideas, not holding them. But you really draw out many times that's been true for folks with just astounding genius levels of creativity or output. Your, their ideas here about recombination. The folks that are listening to this podcast, right? Folks that are academics, they're knowledge workers, the people that follow the latest in all sorts of literatures. What are some of the things that when you talk to audiences like that, you see their shoulders inch down a notch or two? What are these sort of some of these timeless ideas that, that you bring back that help people start to become open to changing how they do things when they relate to information? Yeah, I love that. There, there really are some. I, I like that way of, uh, of noticing, yeah, when their shoulders sort of relax a little bit, when their brow unfurrows, uh, when their eyes kind of go wide and you can see that they're being introduced to a new frame or a new lens that contradicts and in many cases sort of frees them from lenses and perspectives that they held previously. Um, gosh, there's so many. Uh, everything from never start from scratch. You know, it's such a simple idea. So simple to never begin anything from scratch from a blank page from nothing but to start with a a kind of starting set of material uh is so powerful is so powerful um things like uh make it easy you know we we have this bias towards thinking that things that are more difficult and complicated are somehow inherently superior uh, especially when it comes to the working world where it seems like it seems like it's our duty to kind of like do the biggest, most, you know, biggest scope, most ambitious goal possible. Uh, when in fact, a lot of times what's needed to move forward and just create, you know, a small amount of value fast uh, and then iterate from there is to just do small experiments uh, to things like um, look for even something like look for solutions in the outside world. It kind of amazes me that it, especially smart people tend to be almost sometimes too self-reliant. They think they have to come up with the answer, the solution. They have to be right. The burden of having to be right all the time is crushing. It is absolutely crushing to people's creativity and morale. Uh, and something as simple as a bias towards, oh, if I have a question to, you know, you can do a Google search. I think that's probably the, the most likely candidate, but there's other things, you know, find a book and summarize some of the key points. Go and interview, talk to someone who solved this problem before. Uh, take a course or a program, uh, write an essay. There, there is more like higher value and interactive ways of finding answers than kind of passively, you know, scrolling through the internet. Uh, so those were maybe four or five different little uh, principles that people have found helpful, but Gosh, if I, it, I should probably try this sometime, but if I made a full list, there's probably like a hundred. There's probably like a hundred different little takeaways and aphorisms that I've come across just in this, this domain of knowledge management um, that have proven useful. Uh, it's, it's the, 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 the challenge is matching. It's like matching. I think for most people, a small set of those, maybe like five to 10 are really the most useful. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a matter of matching the right person with a certain psychology with the, the little kind of mindset shifts that are going to make the biggest difference for them. Yeah, I, I run a set of um, workshops for academics with a, with a New York Times editor, right? We bring in often tenure track professors, folks in alt-ac, research scientists, folks that are absolutely brilliant and are used to writing in the academic register. And we work with them to start crafting popular work. 
And a lot of that is formal work. It's teaching them the structure of an op-ed or teaching them about a kind of like creative nonfiction practices, right? These, these kind of formalisms. Um, and then so much of it is this inner game, right? It's this kind of coaching. It's this like ability to set aside ideas to know how to collect them. Um, I return, you know, often to, to, to this idea of Feynman's questions, which you also go over in your book and kind of offer some insight on. Um, I wonder if you'd riff on that a little bit. That's one that I found particularly helpful for academics that have a dozen interesting ideas, but can never seem to get any of them kind of finished for public consumption. Yeah, you know, I, I think a great way of describing, um, I guess, my work or my my philosophy or my approach is is really a focus on the informal. The informal to me is the is like this. It's the it's the part of the iceberg that's under the surface. It is this vast domain of, I guess, you could say, knowledge work that is underappreciated, misunderstood. Uh, undervalued and therefore underutilized. Um, and I like the example you chose. Uh, let's, you know, let's look at the example of the hard sciences, right? You might think, oh, well, okay, let's say it's a nuclear engineer, you know, working at CERN or, you know, some particle accelerator. Well, they, they need to use formal methods, right? Like they can't, they're not going to use little, you know, digital note-taking apps on their phone. They, you know, they need very heavy duty, formal, like perfectly precise, you know, tools and, and systems. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true for that one domain of their lives, right? When that engineer is up at CERN doing their particle physics, please, yes, use, you know, the most formal, rigorous database management tool you can. But even for that person, 90% of the rest of their life is informal. You know, like even the most technical scientific, you know, professional, uh, they're a human being. They have not just, there's, there's many aspects of their, to their, to their lives. And most of those aspects are informal. Their relationship with their family, it's informal. Their side projects and things they're learning about, mostly informal. Uh, picking up groceries and, you know, cooking healthy meals, informal. Their exercise and self-care habits. And it's all, it's all completely informal, right? So I almost think like if this nuclear scientist can manage all those other informal parts of their lives a little bit better and therefore be, have a little less stress and anxiety, a little more time, a little more presence and focus to do their hard science better. Well, that is an example of how something as casual and free form as, you know, digital note taking on your smartphone can contribute to even some of the biggest problems of civilization like, you know, nuclear or particle physics. I'd love for you to go a little bit more into that. So part of what you write about some of the advice for informal capture is about using these kind of interstitial moments for planned consumption or for noting down things that will, of course, slip out of mind. And then some of your advice is for not losing all this time that we put into consuming vacuous or not, insightful or not, think pieces that make us think of something new right? That, that whatever they are, they trigger something in us that's interesting. They make us feel something or the reading that we're doing outside of whatever article writing that we're doing. A lot of it is for just making sure that stuff doesn't slip through the cracks necessarily, but you also caution people not to over capture. And I guess I'd love to hear a little bit about how you calibrate to that. And then the process for folks that are differently calibrated to that kind of how you have them find the point that works for them. I, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, you know, this this is such an interesting 
kind of it's kind of a paradox, I think, um, in the realm of creativity and learning and innovation. Uh, and it has to do. I, I mean, the 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 only reason I'll mention these two books is because of your audience. <laughs> um, but books like Gödel, Escher, Bach, um, and even like Thomas Kuhn's uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions talk about this, which is that there, even in something like science, there is a frontier of the unknown, right? Like where do hypotheses come from? Where do fundamental breakthroughs come from? Where do new, like fundamentally new ideas come from? They can't actually come from this formal, rigorous scientific process. They have to come from somewhere outside, some outside kind of mysterious, you know, uh, illegible frontier. And that's kind of how I see note-taking is like, you talked about those interstitial moments. Oh, I think there's a weird paradox here, which is to really be creative and to learn, you have to, it's almost like learn things before you know that you're learning them. If that makes sense. It's like, by the time, you know, you have it all very clear, like, okay, I'm trying to learn X in order to learn X, I need, you know, to accomplish these learning objectives. And this will be the, you know, the output, like the, but by the time it's very kind of, you know, uh, concretely defined, you're already quite a ways down the path, right? You're, you're already like halfway there, but at the start of that path, you're just stumbling around. You're just, just walking around just having random bits of information hit you, things are happening, maybe you're reading, you're having conversations, listening to podcasts. It's like, it's so open-ended and, and um, unplannable. It's totally unplannable. And you have to be open to that unplanned kind of uncertain nature of that uh, because that's where the best ideas come from. They come out of left field. They come out of the direction you least expect, they emerge in times and places that you are not trying to find them. Uh, and that's why note-taking is so powerful because it, it fits so neatly into these little tiny interstitial moments in the way that no other kind of, you know, information system can. I'd love to learn a little bit more. This is, this is a selfish question, um, but about the, so part of what you're saying is that, um, you know, you want to spread this habit out because so much of the the useful first moves, the things that you'll want to have later, come up before the idea is even concretized in your mind that you've started a new project, that you have a new interest, that you're synthesizing ideas. Right? It's 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 just happening. You're in flow, and and I guess I'm you know I'm I'm curious about the kind of pressure to always be accretive or productive, or you know to have kind of your work be agglomerative and kind of building. Um, I know there's some research, right, about taking photos. And if you tell people that they're taking photos to be posted to Instagram or to, you know, um, or for just the, uh, for them to have on their own, it changes how much they'll remember of their, you know, museum or kind of sightseeing experience, how much they'll, they'll rate it in terms of happiness. And so I know, you know, there's, there's an interesting psychological dance here about like instrumentality of, of collection versus the kind of collection that, that happens and keeps you in the moment and feels more wholesome. Um, and I'm curious how, how you navigate that personally. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, this is something I think about a lot these days. Um, now that I have kids, you know, the past couple of years, we've had two kids and it's like, I notice this sometimes I think we've all experienced this. You go to take a photo of something the kid is doing or just some memory you're having 
as a replacement for just experiencing it. <laughs> uh, it's it's definitely a thing. Um, but I think I think there's a more subtle way of thinking about it rather than like that either or black or white thing. Mm. Um, I've noticed this with museums. I, I'm pretty obsessed with museums. Uh, as a kid, I, I drew a lot of ins- inspiration from my work from my father, who's an artist. And all growing up from before I can remember, we would go to a museum uh, most Sundays after church. <laughs> um, it's just kind of funny. Like Sunday, Sunday was was worship day. We in the morning go and, and worship God, and then right after we go and worship modern art. <laughs> was our, our two dual you know forms of worship. Um, and so I just grew up in museums, every kind of museum you can imagine uh, in Los Angeles, and. So still to this day, I, I visit a lot of museums and I've noticed something, which is if I try to capture everything, you know, like there's been times I've taken a photo of every single piece of artwork I looked at, plus the little plaques on the side, because I wanted all the information, wrote down every single experience and, you know, reaction that I had, that is bad. That's, that's an extreme that made the whole experience very stressful and also very forgettable, ironically. Um, but the other extreme, I think, is just is, is just as unhelpful. Like I've done the same experiment in the opposite way, gone through and just taken note of nothing, really not tried to reach anything or accomplish anything at all. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just I find after the fact that experience is also kind of forgettable. It's also kind of like, oh, yeah, I think I went to that museum one time. I, I remember some it's like so little memory available to me that it, 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 it's as if it never happened. I think the best, as with so many things, the best approach is, is somewhere in the middle um, where you just capture, and this, this can apply to all of all experiences, you capture the highlights. You just make a record of a few of the key points in a sense, almost like to triangulate. You're trying to just triangulate a few of the cornerstone moments of that experience in a way that if you see those cornerstones again, they're almost like uh, they, they help you kind of almost reconstruct the memory in your own mind uh, in a way that doesn't take much data. I find three or four photos from a museum visit, you know, a dozen or so highlights from a book, uh, you know, a couple journal entries from uh, two or three journal entries from, from a, a period of a week or two. That's enough. That's, that's not a, a heavy, you know, burdensome amount of information to capture. And it allows me to, in a sense, almost like relive the experience again. You know, you, you're mentioning kind of the, the, the heritage with art reminds me, right, that I think that you're somebody that um, when you give people this advice, and this is something I had to do too, like with, with academics in particular, um, is that to trust that when something is moving them or making them feel something, whether that's argumentative or poignant or, you know, um, makes them feel protest or strong agreement or discomfort, right? Um, Those are all incredibly useful signals um, for intellectual work later on, right? And to actually, to be at peace uh, with those being the initial stirrings of a a thought or feeling and just to, to, to note them so that they don't kind of disappear in a muddle later. Um, oh, I, I, hear, I, hear, I hear you're, you're talking about that. Absolutely. Um, so important. 
I guess this, you know, this this kind of makes me want to ask a question about the topic du jour, right? All of this kind of AI created art, all of these LLMs. Um, I guess I, I wonder how your, you know, I think I think the book came out right before that wave started cresting in a real way. I'm sure I'm sure you were thinking about it when you were writing it, and we're have been experimenting with all sorts of different technologies that you know, allow AI kind of topic, um, you know, semantic understanding, topic segmentation, um, suggestion, right? All, all of these are things that you, I'm sure you're thinking about. Can you give me a sense of, of that idea, though, of like, um, of fidelity of feeling and how you're thinking about all of this? I mean, I, I've noticed you posting about some, uh, uh, you know, dream workflows that are assisted by AI. What role do you think that these technologies no, everyone's pontificating. What what role do you think these technologies will play in personal knowledge management moving forward? What are you seeing coming up ahead? Yeah, I always try to, I mean, first of all, I, I have no idea. Like, I think that's important. My level of certainty is very low, but I have some clues or some, I wouldn't call them predictions, but some, I think, likely scenarios. Uh, I mean, what I've seen when I've studied the past is that the same fundamental activities continue, but they become transformed. Uh, and what I mean by activities is you could just look at the steps of code, right? Like the steps of code are, I believe, absolutely timeless. They will always be relevant, but they might look very different, right? So like we can even go through them, you know, capture uh, is going to change. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change. It's going to become, typically what happens is new, new generations of technology make something faster. They make it easier. They remove friction or obstacles. They make it cheaper. Uh, and ultimately, they kind of like make it invisible. I think this is called um, ephemeralization. They kind of get something that used to be very manual and kind of difficult, and it kind of like dissolves into the background and just becomes sort of this background thing that happens without us having to think about it. Um, so something like something like Capture, you know, there's there's the WhisperSync API. It's one of the, the lesser known uh, products from OpenAI, but it's it brings voice recognition essentially from like 98% accuracy, which surprisingly, surprisingly is not really good enough. You know, like if you have a keyword in a transcript that's been mistranscribed, it's, it's pr pretty problematic. Uh, brings it from like 98% to like 99.9%. Uh, and what that opens up, especially as it becomes cheaper, is like you could just record everything. Every meeting you have, you can really now just get your phone out and transcribe the whole thing, uh, which is interesting because then that creates a new problem, which is that text is very voluminous, right? I mean, you have a one-hour conversation. That can be 10, 20,000 words of, of transcript. So then you move on to organize and distill. Well, then you need something like ChatGPT where you can say, uh, or I guess this would just be GPT-3, you can say like summarize this transcript, right? If you're transcribing everything, you now need a very efficient summarization tool. Uh, so organize and distill are gonna be transformed and then express is gonna be transformed and that you don't actually have to type every word, right? You can now say, okay, get this summary, emphasize this point, this point, and this point, put it in this tone through this voice for this, kind of context and output it and it will just write, you know, at least the first draft of a text for you. So I just see, basically to summarize, I see a very rapid acceleration um, and sort of um, kind of facilitation, making it much easier to go from capture all the way to express, eliminating a lot of the steps that previously had to be done by humans.
Fascinating. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit too about what, what you see kind of evolving um, in the, you know, <laughs> kind of cybernetic linkage between lots of people's uh, second brains, um, you know, in different organizations and families and things like that. Um, obviously this too, right, is changing based on the technology and products that are put, being put out there. But I guess I'm curious about some of the principles um, that you think of here, right? Is, is a second brain for a group of larger <laughs> than one um, a meaningful concept? Um, and how have you seen this done well? What, what, what are you thinking about in your own organization? What's, and what's your interest in theorizing about things like that? Is, is, is that no longer personal knowledge management? Is it, is it something different or outside the scope of what you want to apply these ideas to? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's a very exciting idea that actually has a long history within itself. You know, the idea of the hive mind, the idea of collective intelligence, networked intelligence is old, has been around a long time. Um, I guess my take on this is that it's, it's a, a way harder, in a way, a way harder problem than people realize. And also in a way is already existing in a way that people don't realize. I mean, to me, that's kind of what the internet is. The internet is a, is a form of collective intelligence and that takes so many different forms than just like the exchange of packets, you know, packets of knowledge or notes. Uh, you really need all the, all the parts. You need a social layer. You need a financial layer. You need a, uh, you need a form of, you know, verifying the authority of a source, such as Google page rank. You need search engines. You need, you know, curation and directories. It's like, intelligence like collective intelligence is not just like formal explicit knowledge about you know science or data or like these kind of more intellectual pursuits it's, it's all kinds of intelligence so i think the internet it's, it's almost like how would i put this this the answer to collective intelligence is like internet complete it actually takes the whole internet and is only just beginning so i don't really think that there's going to be like a very like specific category of software that is like collective intelligence apps, right? Um, we may get, you know, note taking apps, knowledge management apps, second brain apps that have better sharing features or, you know, facilitate uh, adding content to each other's second brains or things like that. But I mean, short of artificial intelligence itself, I don't, I don't think the breakthrough is in the design of a software program. I think it's in it's in the, the it's it's the same barriers that are limiting the advancement of the internet as a whole and artificial intelligence as a whole. One of the ideas that you bring up is that uh, any creative project, and I'm, I'm misapplying this idea to, to to this question, but that any creative project right begins uh, with a period of divergence. There's there's all of these uh, opportunities um, for it to go in different directions. You kind of explore in a in a in a breadth first way, but eventually you gotta pick a place to dive deep, and you have to start limiting you have to kind of um close the space that you're in right you even talk about you know when you're when you're in the period of divergence you're all over your you know community um online or in person or your library but eventually you know you limit the amount of books on your desk you limit the amount of documents you're working in and you, you get towards the end um i guess i i wonder um how you know uh this uh is happening in, in different parts of your own work um how you kind of mark that tipping point between 
divergence and convergence, you know, uh, how you work backwards from a deadline or a goal to set that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, divergence and convergence, I mean, is, is definitely not original to me. It's been around a long time. It was part of design thinking. It's part of a lot of different fields. Um, and it's to, to me, it's endlessly subtle. It really is one of the subtle, subtle parts of knowledge work. Because it's not, it's not just, you know, in, in the book I presented as a, a, the simplest possible way, which is like, okay, you do one s- stage of divergence to start, and then you do one stage of convergence, and then you're finished. The reality, of course, is more complicated. It's actually more like a loop, right? You, you loop, you cycle through round after round of alternating stages of divergence and convergence. Um, it's also kind of fractal, you know, like let's say you're in divergence mode and so you're reading all these different articles, right? Trying to expose yourself to as many different ideas as possible. Well, if you zoom in to say one article that you're reading there within that one article, there's like a, there's like a, like a little loop where you're reading the article, which is divergent. And then you're like summarizing and, and highlighting and saving the key points, which is convergent. So it's almost like a, is this really starts to go off off the reservation, but like this fractal system of loops within loops within loops within loops all the way down that somehow we all do, whether you know it or not, <laughs> whether you're trying to or not, it's natural to us. We flip between divergence and convergence. You know, you consider several decisions and then you make one decision. You look at a few different restaurants, you pick one restaurant. You talk about a bunch of things and then you end on an, on a next step in a meeting. It's like constant to what we do as humans. All I'm trying to do is make it a little more kind of aware, like expose it to the surface a little bit so people know that it's happening, understand how it happens and how it happens for them. Because people have different biases. Some people are naturally more biased towards divergence. Some people towards convergence. Some people, some people there's like, you can diagnose little problems like, that they, or, or issues that people have with it. Like some, some people don't transition between them frequently enough. They stay too long in one or the other, which results in certain, you know, negative consequences, or, um, they have certain like attachments or emotions associated with one or the other that makes it difficult to be in that state, which produces other negative consequences. So, I mean, this is really like the meta, super meta level, abstract, conceptual part of knowledge work that I think, few people ever really get into. Um, but it's, I guess, just part of my mission is to just make it a little more palatable and, and accessible for people because it's just it, really accessing it and understanding this level of thinking is just so, it's so powerful. Awesome. And as, as, as we uh, finish up one convergence, if folks want to diverge back into your work, um, how should they do it? Yes. So you can find everything at buildingasecondbrain.com. Um, I have my book, my course, there's a podcast, there's lots of free uh, blog posts, all sorts of other resources. Um, All of it is at buildingasecondbrain.com. Brilliant. Uh, Thanks so much, Tiago. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure, Joseph. Thank you.